Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and my guest this week is none other than the Ian Dunt, columnist with the eye and author of How to Be a Liberal and I'm rather hoping he's going to tell us how to be a liberal over the course of this podcast. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and, or shall I call you Yoda? Can I call you Yoda from now on? <laughs> yeah. On LBC this morning, they called me the boss of UK in a changing Europe. So now oh, wow. I'm going to retire. I know, the boss. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, you put that down as a contractual obligation whenever you appear on a radio station. So. <laughs> anyway, listen, thank you for doing this. Uh, there's an awful lot to talk about, not least because actually it's not just that you wrote a book. You've actually written two books because the paperback and the hardback are different, which I found deeply annoying, but we'll get on to that later on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you didn't read it twice, did you? Well, I mean, there's two different endings. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, I am legend. You can do the sort of alternative ending if you're feeling like in a different mood. But anyway, you, you, one of the things you say is liberalism is the single most radical political program in the history of humankind. Can you explain why? The core of it is in the idea of the individual, right? Which, which most of the time we kind of think of as this quite right-wing idea. I think we associate it with Thatcherism. It's none, it's none of that, and it doesn't have to be that. If you believe in the freedom of the individual and you believe that politics is about individual thought and individual criticism, you kind of eradicate the ability of power to homogenize you, to press down on you, to demand that you have an answer. We tend to think of things like sort of communism as very radical, but in actual fact, whenever you actually see communism imposed, it's always about turning people into the same thing. It's always about a power from on high being able to bludgeon them into shape. Mm -hmm. What liberalism does is by putting power in the individual, it can never be used to oppress. It can never be used to try and control people, control their thoughts, control their actions. It places power at the spot where it needs to be for things to be radical, to stand up to, to sort of executive power, to the power of society, to the power of markets. And for that reason, when you really commit to it, the actual liberalism, rather than the thing that people sort of tend to associate with it, you find yourself with the most radical program that we've ever seen in the history of humankind. And, as grand and you, hysterical as that may sound, it is nevertheless <laughs> objectively true. It's a very good line. I mean, do you find the whole notion of group identities inherently problematic then? No, so there's, there's space for that in liberalism, but what it demands is that it's mediated by the individual. So you have people like Isaiah Berlin, George Orwell, they try to work their way through this stuff. They kind of realized, especially with Isaiah Berlin, it's just like, you know, belonging is, core to what it is that makes us human like it's almost you know no matter how much you have sort of you know your david goodhearts or your, or your whatever saying that there's these sort of anywhere people you never actually meet them right like i've never met anyone who really has no sense of belonging whether it's to their town or to their continent or to their country or just to a football club or whatever else we have that need to belong what liberalism asks is that it isn't imposed from above but is an expression of the individual and is respected by virtue of being an expression of the individual. And that means also that it's plural, that it's diverse, you know, that it's not just one homogenous slab that anyone can ever say, well, you're not properly English now because you think this or that. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of the ultimate imagined communities, isn't it? It comes from the, it comes from the bottom up. It's, it's what we have in our minds. It's not what we're told we are. Right. And, and how else could it be anything else? You know, I mean, you know, of course, all of this stuff is made up. You know, England is made up. It didn't have to be this way. If history was another way, you know, I'd be supposed to be terribly patriotic towards Hampshire or some Sussex kingdom or whatever. You know, this stuff is all it's obviously a political construct, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that we feel it. And it only matters insofar as we do feel it. You know, and that's one of the core things with liberalism as well, not just that it provides a space for belonging 
but that it provides a space for those who don't feel a particular kind of belonging. That if someone says, well, I care about my town, but actually as it happens, I don't really care about England, or I do feel British and European, but I don't particularly feel English, whatever, then that's fine. Because that's what the individual says. That's is your personal love story, your personal sense of association with a place, rather than one that can be demanded of you. Interesting. Now, I mean, it breaks my heart to say this, but it is actually quite an impressive book. Just, I mean, just in terms of ambition, I mean, you sort of do the whole gamut of political thought from, if you like, Descartes to Donald Trump. So, which, as you sort of, you must have done an immense amount of reading to write this book, first and foremost. Who do you most enjoy reading? You know what's funny is the ones that are the most fun to read are often the ones who are most wrong. So Rousseau, kind of Swiss lunatic, really, who I think is ultimately responsible for the deaths of millions of people by virtue of his ideas of the general will and the homogeneity of human groups, is an absolute delight to read. Like he has a turn of phrase that is extremely yeah. elegant, very, very beautifully put. Some of the ones that are sort of most intelligent and most important, like John Locke, and you could argue bits of John Stuart Mill are actually quite brutalizing to read. There's one point, I remember like reading John Stuart Mill's autobiography and th this paragraph hadn't broken for like a page. And I was like, what John, where does this, where does this paragraph end? And you just flick, flick, flick. And you're like, oh no, it's all one paragraph. The paragraph goes on for seven pages. Thank you so much for making it so easy. I mean, Russo wins the prize for best first line, hands down. Absolutely, yeah. But not just that, you know, after, after he does the whole, you know, but everywhere is in chains bit, he sort of has this little preamble and he goes, how did this situation come about? I don't know. How is it that can be changed? I think I can answer that question. And even that, this really conversational kind of light, almost kind of blogging sort of tone is yeah. astonishing for a piece of work written in that period. Yeah, yeah, Rousseau would have been good on Twitter, I reckon. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, he would have been an absolute monster and would have, he would have been, uh, the guy would have been cancelled. But, you know, but yeah, phrasing, <laughs> he would have been very, very good indeed. Why, why is it that liberal has become a dirty word? Uh, why is liberal used as a sort of term of abuse? I mean, you know, in day-to-day -day conversation, it's sometimes sort of been seen as a sort of synonym for some kind of wishy-washy centrism, which sort of is at odds with the sort of rather sort of heroic portrayal you gave of it. How has that happened? Because we're out of fashion, we're out of favour, and we're getting, you know, we're getting our answers handed to us realistically. I've recently read, I've been reading a few books on you know, from within different parts of the labor movement. And I've been reading a few books on sort of issues around trans rights. And what's amazing to me is that in every single one of these books I've read from right and left, from different parts of sort of trans debate stuff, they all used liberal as a slur against the other side, which is quite a yeah. demanding thing to go through when you're like, oh, so these guys think that they're the enemy. And oh, these guys who think the exact opposite have just accused them of being liberal. So at this point, it is basically a slur. And it is deeply out of fashion. But that, to me, doesn't seem to be... A, a problem insofar as if you look at the debates that we have today in almost any part of politics, what we're seeing is what happens to politics when liberalism isn't part of it, when the individual isn't considered a, a primary unit of analysis. You see people just adopt an identity, it can be political, it can be to do you know, with their heritage, it can be to do with the country, and that politics becomes the identity. Then yeah. political debate just becomes these smashing rocks where no quarter can be given, because you're not really arguing about what you want or what should happen to the country. What you're arguing about is about who you are, these great tribal totems of your sense of identity. Now, that is what happens when you give up on liberalism. That's what happens when you give up on the individual. So honestly, most of the time when people ask, well, you know, what's a good argument for liberalism? You just look around and go, look at the debate today. Is that what you want? 
because that is a product of what happens when you forsake liberty. So state-sponsored identity politics is a very, very powerful tool and a very popular one in some uh, in some parts of the world at this time, isn't it? It's a very hard enemy to fight, isn't it? I mean, just think about India, actually, primarily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely in India. Um, Brazil, a bit more volatile. In the US, I mean, we forget how powerful it was because it lost. But still, when you look at the amount of people voting who were receptive to those sorts of ideas, it was effective. In Britain, I think we slightly overstate how powerful it is because our electoral system is so mangled that we easily forget, you know, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of voters don't support Boris Johnson at the moment, don't like the sound of, of a lot of that politics. But it can be very powerful and it can get you above the line. It also works really effectively to conceal your own culpability in events. And we've seen that really all the way through. I mean, I think you see the first glimmers of that in the Dreyfus affair, where you get this, the use of conspiracy theory, in that case, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. that are used to kind of launder reality. So anything bad, you know, was the result of Jewish people. Anything yeah. good was the result of the nationalists. And whatever happens in reality, I mean, you can change this day by day, but as long as the conspiracy theory stays in place, you have to transmit empirical reality through that prism and you come out with the nationalists being the good guys and Jewish people being the bad guys. I think you see the same thing now. I mean, if you look, you know, we're speaking the day after David Frost made um, a speech on the Irish protocol. It's hard to find a single thing that's true in that speech. But as long as you set up this kind of fictional narrative, you can then just transmit empirical reality to it so that your view of the world, your message to your supporters is constantly just projected out. But Boris Johnson would self-identify as a liberal. Is he a liberal? Uh, I don't think he's much of anything. I don't think he's a nationalist either. I don't think he's ever held a single conviction in any kind of consistent way. I think if you look at Trump, Trump wasn't really able to articulate it because, you know, he was intellectually subnormal, but he, he was quite consistent, actually, in his views on immigration, you know, and his views on trade. I mean, actually, they've been there for a while. Like Bolsonaro, I mean, certainly Orban. Orban is the one who's really, in Hungary, is really the most kind of intellectually capable, explicit about what he is doing. You know, he says, I'm here to destroy liberalism. And he couldn't be mm -hmm. clear. I was trying to find quotes from him to use in the book. I was like, I mean, which quotes don't I use in order to demonstrate what he's doing? I mean, Johnson just doesn't really care about anything. What he did, and in a way, it's the same decision, really, that Theresa May made in 2016, was don't take the Brexit vote as a political problem that has to be worked through, that's quite complicated, you know, that's going to result in concessions that no one's really happy with, but that's the way to deliver it. It's that vote leave as a campaign during the referendum provided mm. a very powerful electoral mechanism uh, for the future of the Conservative Party. So you just embrace the rhetoric, embrace the attitude. And that's really what you see from Boris Johnson. He isn't really a nationalist now any more than he was really a liberal when he was in London, when he was the London mayor. He just isn't anything apart from what is most useful to his short term interests at the time. I mean, it's, it's a nice segue onto the whole Brexit thing. I mean, if 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 liberalism is partly about emancipation, which from what you're saying, it partly is it's about the emancipation of the individual. Is, is there a liberal case for Brexit? I got asked this the other day. Yeah, but you were asked it better just now. <laughs> no, absolutely. It was it was the charisma with which it was communicated, I think, that really distinguished it. You could make the case, I suppose, for a particular kind of Brexit on a particular region. So the idea of sharing sovereignty is mm -hmm. a pretty new one in liberal thought. It came from the sort of post-war period. Liberalism had almost gone extinct under Nazism and communism. And you get this sense of like, no, we, we can't let this happen. We're going to go back to this old liberal belief, which is which had been there really since the American Revolution, which was 
trade will replace war. You know, trade mm. is the mechanism by which we achieve through peaceful means what we would otherwise achieve by killing each other. And it took that and it basically enmeshed it in the EU. You also see the same process happening at the WTO. Um, and all of that involved a bit of sharing of sovereignty. Now, that was contingent. You know, at any time you could vote for a party that wanted to take you out of these structures, as indeed Britain did. And then it would go. So it's not like you lost it permanently, but you were lending a bit of sovereignty. And you thought we, you got more back in, in return through trade, through stability, through increased individual rights, through things like freedom of movement, you know, and through human rights law. You can potentially make cases of liberal. You're saying, well, that, that sovereignty has gone too far, because that's essentially a technical question about the extent of separation of power. What you couldn't do is do Brexit the way that we did it. So you'd be really hard pushed to find a liberal argument against freedom of movement. Freedom of movement is the freedom of the individual in space. It is a very profound mechanism for freedom of the individual. It's, it's about as base level as you could possibly imagine. You also, in the manner in which you argue it, by the time that you say things like enemy of the people, enemy of the people have been the weapon against liberalism since time immemorial. I mean, and I mean really from, from Rob's peer, okay? You know, this is the classic Rousseau thing. Here are the people. They have a shared sense of consciousness. Those who are outside of them or criticize them, you know, must be either traitors to them or possibly just lacking in enough conviction about the nature of the, of the country, about their commitment to the country. You see that brought up again under the Nazi regime on the basis of race, where the people means race, under the Soviet regime, where it means class. And then you see it in sort of right-wing populist movements around the nation state. And that is a fundamentally illiberal form of rhetoric that essentially eradicates the individual. And I could list numerous other things. I mean, the destruction of objective true. But on that basis, on the manner in which Brexit was pursued, that was a fundamentally illiberal project. So go on then, give me a liberal case for Scottish independence. You can have liberal cases for pretty much any debate you want to have mm -hmm. about where you center power and decision making because none of that is fundamental to a sort of liberal project the, the question is how you pursue it right so you know we call them the nationalists right now are they the same as orban you know as boris johnson no, obviously not because that's not the kind of communication they're engaged in they're not denying objective truth they're not talking about you know the people as one great homogenous unit however it's possible that over the course of an independence debate that is exactly what will happen I mean, you can yeah. see it already. You can, you can imagine the temptations on Sturgeon to just go, oh, well, you know, actually, maybe we can come up with some high-tech solutions and customs borders don't really exist, don't really matter. So we'll, we'll be able yeah. to trade again, of course, because the temptation would be so severe. And you would judge the liberalism of that, of that agenda, I think, by virtue of how they behave in the, in the sort of, in the furnace of the debate around it. At the moment, the liberal credentials are pretty strong. You know, I don't agree with it. I'm against Scottish independence, but I would never for a single moment say that these people weren't liberals or weren't signing up to basic ideas of liberal democracy. Well, I mean, one of the really interesting sort of arguments you touch on in the book is the argument about the way that the financial crisis and the austerity that came from it led to a backlash against liberal democracy. And just to explain to us why it is you think that it was the populist radical right that came out of things so well, came out of that crisis so well? I mean, we see this process pretty much every time that laissez-faire liberalism takes over. So liberalism kind of has two wings, right? It, I mean, it, it has thousands of wings because it's yeah. liberalism and they yeah. can't agree on anything. But one of the two sort of cheap ones, I'd say, laissez-faire on the right, which is essentially to say, look, markets regulate themselves much better than the state does if it interferes. You know, people should keep their stuff, low taxation, etc. And then you have radical liberalism. On the left, who says kind of John Maynard Keynes, John Stuart Mill says, no, the state has got to interfere in the market really quite a lot. 
What we saw in the financial crash, I mean, people think about the mortgages and the borrowers. Well, actually, the, the core thing that we saw was demonstration that actually markets on their own do not regulate themselves. That most clearly in the credit rating agencies. And they're the ones that were supposed to be smacking, you know, AAA ratings on these quite toxic assets, investment assets based on mortgages. And those assets were then being used to secure liquidity in the repo market and outside. So basically to get sloshing money into the people that held them. Now, over and over again, the credit rating agencies, although it was quite clear that this was a very dangerous business, kept on giving them AAA ratings. Why? Because they were paid by the people to yeah. give them those ratings. Now, that is a massive conflict of interest. And if you go back, you look at the sort of, you know, congressional hearings, you look at select committee hearings before, uh, before it happened, what you will hear over and over is, well, the market regulates itself much better than the state will. Now, that is catastrophically and singularly false and was demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt by what happened in the financial crash. Now, when the economy bottoms out like that, when you demonstrate that the entire sort of rhetoric around which you have based economic affairs is false. When you take away people's security, their sense of how they pay their rent, of having good quality work, they will look for different kinds of meaning, different kinds of certainty. This, is, this happened before. I mean, I don't want to make the parallel too strongly because you always look like a bit mad when you start talking about the Nazis. But this is the process that we saw in the lead up to the Second World War when we saw extremists come in. Again, predominantly due to banking regulation. You know, over and over, whenever liberalism is seduced by the right, seduced by laissez-faire, it leaves people as these sort of atomized units without protection in an economy that they can see as false and failing. And they are then open to appeals by those who go, you know what, you do have a firm sense of identity. There is something for you to be proud of. You can be proud of your race. You can be proud of your country. You can be proud of your sex. All these other kind of identity units that offer the certainty that liberalism itself failed to do. So look, it's not just, populism isn't just a response to the financial crisis. There's all sorts of cultural and identity issues as well, but the economics is part of it and it is an absolutely essential part. I, re I remember when someone told me sort of in the wake of the financial crisis, I hadn't realized that the rating agencies were paid by the firms that they rated and I thought they were taking the mickey. Oh my God. I, know. <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I, I asked three different experts. I kept on asking because I was just like, just I mean, I the wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, it can't possibly be actually true, can it? And over and over, they're just like, why, why don't people talk about this enough? Why don't people talk about that enough? It is so egregious, yeah. so sort of like face-slappingly insane that you kind of wonder why it isn't a greater part of our conversation. I mean, we can't really have this conversation, I suppose, without mentioning the last couple of years, COVID lockdowns and so on. Opponents of lockdown made great play of the fact that they were standing up for liberty and liberalism. Do you think they were? I can't tell you how enjoyable that was to watch these guys <laughs> that had just ended freedom of movement. You know, in America, they're against abortion. And then they're like, oh, but we believe in individual freedom. And you think like, really, though, do you? I think there's a process taking place there that's to do with laissez-faire. And it's to do with this, this idea. You see it in Frederick Hayek, really. Frederick Hayek, he, he, was, a, he was a decent chap, really. And, <laughs> and I quite like him. He was, that's the sort of analysis we come to you for. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm here for it, man. I'm here for it. Not, not it's like a Monty Python song. Um, look, he, he really betrays himself in Chile. And I think Chile provides a pretty good indication of what happened to that kind of liberalism. I call it laissez-faire. You can call it neoliberalism. You can call it libertarianism. For our purposes here, they're basically all the same thing. It's Chile when Pinochet is there. Pinochet is just massacring people. He is murdering political opponents. They have camps 
that are established to rape women, you know, any woman who's a socialist, who's a communist, it is an absolutely appalling assault on individual freedom. Hayek goes, doesn't complain about anything, comes back, writes angry letters to editors who complain about Chilean human rights going, you don't understand it. Why? Because that wing of liberalism, laissez-faire, had basically become completely lost in the idea of market freedom and had forgotten the idea of individual freedom that, get rise, that gave rise to it. They essentially fetishized the market. Now, you look at the comments that were made by Tory MPs, by Republican politicians in the US about lockdowns. Most of the time, they're not really talking about individual freedom. They're talking about the freedom of companies. The hmm. moment that they start getting very upset is when the shops close, you know, is when, when offices are empty. The predominant emotion there is economic. Now, there's also a second part to this, which is kind of a bit more complex. It's about imagination. And one of the problems that has kind of plagued liberalism throughout its history is a failure of imagination of who you apply the rights to. So obviously you take, you know, the US Constitution, individual freedom, never, oh, but also slavery over here. You mm -hmm. see the way that it was applied with women throughout this, always this group that you take out and you exclude from the community of the free. Legally, we got rid of a lot of that, you know, especially through sort of, you know, the civil rights movements in the 60s, feminism. However, there is still in people's heads, uh, for many of them on the right, this complete failure on the community of the free. They fail to think of the freedoms that someone has if they're people who are different to them. So they can imagine the freedom of, you must wear a mask, you can't yeah. leave your house. That, they, they get that. But when it comes to, you know, here you have, uh, you know, uh, racial discrimination or from the police or sexual discrimination in the workplace or the abortion rights or immigration rights. They don't get that. They don't have any experience of that. They don't know those people. They don't experience those restrictions on their freedom. So suddenly when the freedoms affected them, like masks, they get very passionate. When they affect someone else, they couldn't care less. And that is this kind of watered down, diluted Ribena version of the tyranny of the community of the free that we saw hundreds of years before in the liberal tradition. So it's a kind of empathy gap. Liberalism and the love of freedom requires empathy more than almost any other quality, because it's not enough to just think about your own freedoms. You know, that's how liberalism always thought about freedom of speech, freedom to vote. I mean, important, right? But there were the things that mattered to middle-class straight white men. To truly commit to freedom, you must have this power of empathy, of imagining what life is like if you're not yourself, of listening to other people about the infringements on their freedom that they face. That is the only real way that you come up with a system that genuinely increases freedom for all, instead of just kind of consolidating into a community of the free and to just people who happen to be like you. The power of empathy is the really, really underestimated quality in the liberal tradition and one that we could at the moment due with uh, is due to be revived. You, you sort of rose to prominence during the Brexit debates as the sort of sweary commentator on British politics who would sort of give us that running commentary on so many of those parliamentary debates or whatever it was that we lived through for those years. Are you, are you still as obsessed with British politics now as you seem to be then? British politics, certainly. I mean, Brexit, I've, oh. <laughs> I think I think you can swear on this. Oh, can I swear? Oh, right. Otherwise they wouldn't have invited you. I find Brexit quite hard to go back to because I've had it recently going over, you know, the protocol stuff. It's sort of part of you is like, oh, hello, old friend. <laughs> We're going to talk about trade rules again. And the other part is just like, I remember just how mind-gratingly tedious this stuff is to get back into. And it really is. It's just utter, utter tedium. I would love, ideally starting in 2015, that Boris Johnson's maxim of get Brexit done, it all just goes away and we never have to talk about it. I would actually love if that was the case. If only it was the case, but they're obsessed with talking about it and obsessed with messing around with it. So in fact, you, you do have to stick to it. But my, my interest is 
predominantly in British politics. I'm not tremendously okay with like, you know, with what's going on internationally, just the, the bits that I sort of need. And that comes from the fact that I really care about this country. Like, you know, despite all this stuff, I'm actually patriotic about this country. And there is a quality to it, which can make it a far, far better place than the one that it is right now. So where there's that emotional push, generally, that's where your journalism is focused. And that's usually where you do your best journalism, where you have that emotional instinct towards it. And so I imagine that's what I'll be doing. Oh, Christ. I mean, probably forever. Sorry, mate. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably good news, I suppose. And just, to, just to sort of end where we started, your paperback ends on a far more optimistic note with Biden's victory. Is that where you are still? Are you still feeling optimistic? Yeah, it does. I mean, he was very useful in that in that way because, you know, the hardback came out before he, before he won. So it was all about, look, we can take these guys on, we can fight them, we can win. Then Biden wins and you're like, well, okay, we have proof here. And so the narrative ends on a higher note than it did before. I do. Look, I think we have to disentangle his foreign policy from his domestic policy. Okay, his foreign policy is a disaster and it's hard to forgive some of the things that he mm -hmm. said in Afghanistan. And clearly there's an America first attitude towards it. Domestically, what you're seeing is a complete rejection of the kind of laissez-faire liberalism followed by people, yes, including Barack Obama and certainly Bill Clinton. During the financial crash, Barack Obama absolutely panicked when there was a suggestion of a fiscal stimulus, of an intervention in the market that would go anywhere near one trillion. Biden passes those with extraordinary regularity. He seems to do it most Tuesday. If you look at the manner in which he's talked about marginalized groups, in which he listens to people who are suffering discrimination on the basis of race, for instance, you're seeing this retreat from the aloofness of liberalism before, from the tone deafness as to those demands, and actually an engagement with it, willingness to do something, and in a highly intelligent way. You know, the Biden administration, you come to the Biden administration with Black Lives Matter, and they're like, great, this works, we can work with this. You come to them mm -hmm. with the police they're like well, well you've got about seven percent of people that will support that statement so you can go home and come up with something better if you want to do something with it that kind of cooperation between marginalized groups between radical groups and liberalism is absolutely vital to its future it is radical or it is nothing if it goes back to the stale managerial hands-off atomized liberalism of laissez-faire as it did during the financial crash then we are toast we are absolutely gone you've got to learn from your mistakes and the thing that encourages me in Biden in his domestic policy is that he sees the mistakes and he is starting to rectify them. Are you equally optimistic about this country? No, no, I'm full of doom and despair. And it's that really that leads me to drink quite as much as I am at the moment and therefore expand in size on a daily basis, even though lockdown is, is completely over. The bit that does give me some hope is liberals' ability to articulate their value in a way that I don't think we did up to that 2016 sort of double whammy of Brexit and Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just this sense of, oh, the world keeps on getting more tolerant, you know, more free, you know, more liberal, et cetera. As if, it, as if there was this sort of iron law to history. There is no iron law to history. History is what you make it. And if you stop fighting for your values, don't be surprised where they can get smashed with alarming ease, as indeed they were. Now, in response to that, by virtue of being the barbarians at the gate, by virtue of not being in charge anymore, people are able to articulate their values and to fight for their values. And in that, I mean, at the moment, it looks like we're always getting pounded. But in that, in that sense of um, 
of commitment and articulation to the ideals, I think that's where eventually you see things improving in this country. Wonderful. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to talk to you. Thanks for finding the time. To you, all you listening, do go out and buy the book because it is just a fascinating read. To those of you who don't know Ian, what you've just heard is pretty much what you get if you go out for the night with him. You have to sit there and listen to him ranting on while you just nod politely and don't get away. I was just thinking this was a great conversation because... I get to talk all the time and you're really restricted. Well, I, I understand that's what you mean by conversation. But... Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And I <laughs> replicate this at all times. <laughs> that's exactly, I think, 90% to 10%. Perfect, perfect. Yes, no change there. Ian, thanks ever so much. It's been fascinating. Cheers, mate.